welcome to the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, August 11, 2020. It's Tuesday, so it must be Hershey Dwoskin. Welcome, Hershey. Hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, we have a really interesting class today or session today, and it's mainly aimed at those of you who are political junkies, people who can't get their eyes off of Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. And it's about the U.S. political system, but it's not about the election, which we're going to be uh, watching over so carefully this November. It's all about how American presidents are selected. Uh, in, In particular, it's all about the Electoral College and Some of you have asked me to speak about it, so that's the reason why I chose this subject. And it's a subject which gives so much much, uh, light on the American country, the American people, American history, and that's why it's such an important subject. So I'll start off by saying that um, When the founders of America in the 1780s were discussing how to select a president, they had really no um, experiences, no models, no samples, no nothing. They had to make it up from scratch because America, in essence, was the first democracy, the first modern democracy in the world. So whatever they did, they have to make up uh, sort of on their own with no, um, no other country to use as a model. And needless to say, whatever political divisions were uh, I- inherent in the United States, the new country, the United States, played themselves out in the struggle to f- come up with a um, um, uh, blueprint for how to select the president. And they tried to kill many stones at one time, and they tried to kind of, uh, let's say, um, compromise many opposite viewpoints. And that's what they came up with. What were some of the most important divisions in the United States at the time? Um, There were many. Uh, The primary ones were, should the United States be a strong, united federal system uh, with a strong president based in a capital city? Or should it be a much more diffuse system, a much more decentralized system, where the individual colonies, now called states, would come together to support a weak uh, central government? So that was one one, uh, conflict, the center versus the states. Another one was um, how much power should uh, influential people have and wealthy people have versus should that power be spread out equally to all the citizens? That was another big question. Another kind of underlying question, which even had its start at the beginning, was uh, the northern states versus the southern states. Uh, Should the northern states, because they're more populous, have more power? Or should the southern states, because they were wealthier, should they have more power? So all of these discussions, you know, took endless uh, 
amounts of meetings and constitutional uh, negotiations to go on and until they finally came up with a kind of a system. What were the most important points in the system that they came up with? The first most important point was there has to be a separation of powers. They did not want all the power to be in the hands of one person because they had just rebelled against the British monarchy where all the power was in the hands of either the king himself or the governors of each state, who, of each colony that were appointed by the king. So they knew they had to make power separated. Uh, they didn't want um, a centralized uh, power because they didn't want a sort of a dictatorship to develop, number one. And then they also didn't want corruption to develop, number two. So in other words, that if all power was centralized in one person, uh, people with money could pay that person to do whatever they wanted. If power was, was diffused out among many power centers, it would be harder for corruption to take hold. And that was some, those were some of their considerations. Um, um, and uh, that, that was kind of the sort of general philosophy. How it played out in, in the discussion selecting a president was, um, should Congress itself, meaning the future elected representatives, should those representatives select the president, or should there be a direct vote with a one-man, one-vote system to select the president. Though, though that argument was, was, um, was uh, one where um, the sort of constitutional founders, let's say uh, James Madison on the one hand, uh, who wanted a one-man, one-vote system, or Alexander Hamilton on the other hand, who wanted an indirect election for the president. So the Electoral College was really a compromise between these two... Um, these two schools. And um, the Electoral College was set up uh, as, a, as, as a compromise. So it would have elements in it of a popular vote, and it would have elements in it of an indirect vote. And that was a system that was uh, decided upon early on, or not so early on, but um, uh, before the very first election was held in the United States. Remember that in those days, there were no political parties. Political parties got organized fairly quickly, but when the founders of the Republic were um, discussing this, there were no political parties. Um, and um, therefore, because there were no political parties, um, Alexander Hamilton in particular was worried that uh, uh, against a, a mob rule. In other words, he was worried that if everybody just had a vote and all votes were equal, well, then um, people who knew nothing about politics but who were just kind of the mob um, uh, or people who were just kind of looking for popularity, that they would elect a president who was unsuitable against the better judgment of those who were educated and those who were experienced. And that was kind of the way he was worrying about it. Um, he wanted educated people to make the final decision. And that's what led to the Electoral College itself. Um, at the beginning, when things were, were just started, there were only six states out of the 13 
who had direct elections to choose the electors. In other words, uh, the type of system that we have today. Um, in most of the cases, it was the state legislators uh, in the, in the uh, individual states who chose the electors who then elected the president. Uh, by, uh, by 1824, however, uh, 18 out of the 24 states um, did choose the electors directly and not have the state legislators do it. By 1840, only one state, South Carolina, chose the electors by, uh, the electors were chosen by the um, uh, state legislator. And think of South Carolina, they were the very first state to secede uh, 25 years later. So that state has always been a kind of, a, a kind of an exception in a way, or kind of a, uh, a retrograde exception to how things were going. The assumption by the founders of the America were that there would be so many people running for president that, um, and so many different candidates would get electors, that uh, in any case, no elector would get, no candidate would get more than half of the electoral college. In other words, uh, there would be many candidates and each would get a few votes. Those votes would then uh, translate into electoral college votes and uh, that no candidate would win a majority. In that case, uh, there is no runoffs. In that case, if no, and still to this very day, if no electoral, no candidate wins a majority of the electoral college, the election then goes to the House of Representatives, and that's who chooses the president. And this actually happened uh, two times, but the last time was in 1824 itself. So it's, it's a, uh, because of the two-party system, it's impossible now that, um, uh, the nobody will win a majority in the uh, electoral college. The last time there was anyone who won uh, uh, any electoral college votes besides the two main parties was in 1968 when George Wallace, uh, the Southern segregationist uh, governor of Alabama, he ran as a kind of a Southern Democrat, or no, not a Southern Democrat, but he ran as a Southern uh, candidate, and, and he won uh, five states in the Deep South. But after that, no one has ever won a state uh, beside a Democrat or a Republican. So therefore, in a two-party race, there always has to be someone who wins a majority of the Electoral College. Um, so, um, so what is the Electoral College? The Electoral College is um, a group of members of people who represent each state in the formal choosing of the president. How many electoral college votes, how many electoral college electors are there? There today are 538. How are these 538 people uh, selected or why 538? Let's start with that. Uh, the 538 is a number arrived at by adding up the number of senators in the United States, which is two per state, so two times 50 is 100, 
And then adding to that, the number of House of Representative members that each state has, which comes to 435. So 435 and 100 makes 535. The extra three come from the District of Columbia, which does not elect a senator. Therefore, each state having two senators, D.C. would have two, but they have none because they don't they don't have the right to have a, sen a, sen a membership in the Senate, and they have one member of the House of Representatives. So they were given the right in 1961 to have three electoral votes, the minimum that any state could have. So if you think of it, that minimum is achieved by adding up two senators from each state, plus one minimum representative equals three. So the minimum electoral votes that any state could have is three. And right now, there are seven states that have three electoral uh, members. Five of those states voted for the Republicans in the last election, and two voted for the Democrats, the two being Vermont and D.C., District of Columbia itself. So that's how the number 538 is selected, is arrived at. So there are 538 uh, electoral college votes. And uh, these, the actual electors are uh, people, and oh, so the 538 electoral college votes. In 48 of the 50 states, the winner of the most votes for president in that state gets all the electoral college votes. And in two states, Nebraska and Maine, the winners, uh, the, each of those two states have two congressional districts. And each the winner of the vote in each congress congressional district gets that electoral vote for the state. So uh, that's, how, uh, that's how that works. Uh, there's four districts. Uh, yeah, there's... Um, yeah, there's four... Yeah, they have four, ele they have four electoral votes each. And they're divided up by district. That's how that's how it works. Um, so, but it, basically, it's a winner-take-all system. So, if in New York the Democrat wins more votes than the Republicans, there's 29 electoral votes in New York. All those 29 votes go to the Democrats, uh, etc. Uh, the so I said the smallest state has three electoral votes. The largest state, California, has 55 electoral votes. So in other words, the way the system is working, population is definitely the key factor in deciding how many electoral votes each state has. But there's a kind of a biased advantage to the small states because each state has two senators and those two senators represent two electoral votes and whether the state is big or small, those two votes still count equally. So that's why there is a kind of a a built-in bias to the smaller states, which have three or four electoral votes, even though they don't have um, the percentage of the population that the larger state has. So uh, the smaller states do have an advantage. And right now, the Republicans, if you look at the states like North Dakota and South Dakota, uh, Montana, Wyoming, uh, Alaska, those are the smallest states. They're the ones who have just three electoral votes. And uh, then there's some states that have four, uh, similarly, like Idaho with four, New Hampshire with four, 
they also tend to lean to the Republican side. Uh, Hawaii also has four, that's a Democratic one. Um, now, the parties themselves select in each state, the parties select who the actual people are who are going to be the electors. It's a kind of an honorary job. The electors are supposed to vote for the candidate that the representing the majority of the vote in that state. Now, sometimes they don't. These people are called faithless electors because theoretically they're supposed to be able to make up their own minds. It doesn't say anywhere the law doesn't require them to vote for any specific candidate. And there have been cases in the past where these people have strayed, we'll call it. But the, this straying has always been a little, a few, an, an exception, and has never determined the results of an election. There was just a Supreme Court case this year, decided by the Supreme Court, that said that states are allowed to punish electors who don't vote for the majority uh, winner of the state. So, uh, you know, this is a kind of a, just a sidebar to this issue. So the electors in, in this day and age are just uh, a formality and they carry out uh, the wishes of the majority vote in the state. Now, one interesting fact is that where this is done, so where do these electors actually put their votes in an urn? It's not in Washington, D.C. It's done in the capital of every state on the night of the election. So why this is done this way is the founders said, well, if these people all gathered up in Washington to make their electoral choices, then they could be open to bribery and open to influence peddling and open to you know, some sort of a quid pro quo. And that's why they wanted it spread out in every state. And it also gives a, an affirmation to the idea that it's the states themselves who individually choose the president and not the population of the country at large who does this. So if then the electoral college is done this way, what are the sort of practical results of this? Um, in general, in all the elections that the Americans have had since 1789, there have been five times when the winner of the Electoral College didn't get more votes than the loser. Two of these times happened in the 21st century, the 20, 2000 election between um, uh, uh, the 2000 election between Gore and uh, uh, Bush, uh, and of course the 2016 election between Clinton and Trump. In the Gore-Bush vote, um, Gore got 48.4% of the total vote, and Bush got 47.9%. Hillary Clinton got 48.2% of the vote, and Trump got 46.1% of the vote. Uh, but Trump said there were millions of his votes that weren't counted, which, of course, will say anything, but that was the final result. So the Electoral College doesn't reflect exactly the votes that are given out. And that's because uh, a state, a large state like California or New York, can vote by an overwhelming majority, let's say more than 60% for a certain candidate, but yet all that candidate has to do is win one more vote than a loser, and all the Electoral College votes will go to that candidate. And so therefore, there are a lot of, quote, wasted votes. 
Similar to the way, the way our system works in Canada or Great Britain, we have a lot of wasted votes in, in, in constituencies where there's a huge majority of votes. In fact, uh, in the last Canadian election, uh, the Conservatives under Andrew Scheer won more votes than the Liberals under Trudeau, but Trudeau got more seats. So there are these, we'll call them uh, mathematical uh, uh, imperfections, um, but uh, you know, anytime you have to choose a system, you're going to always have some certain problems. What the Electoral College does tend to do is the reverse, meaning that the winner of the, electoral, of the election always gets a bigger percentage of the Electoral College votes than he gets of the actual vote. Um, and that's, uh, again, because the winner's uh, votes are exaggerated. So, uh, you know, if somebody wins a state by 51% to 49 and gets all the Electoral votes and does that several times over, then his winning percentage of electoral votes will be much bigger than his winning percentage of the actual vote. Considering that in, in the past many, many U.S. elections, um, uh, each candidate, uh, the winning candidate gets under 60% of the vote, and the losing candidate gets over 40% of the vote. And yet in many times the electoral college vote is like more than 60% uh, for the winner and less than 40% for the loser. So it tends to sort of amplify the results of the election. But, you know, in a couple of cases, like Trump's win, it actually does the reverse. Um, now let's go back again to maybe a bit more of the history and voting in the United States. And um, uh, the... The founders had to decide, as I said before, if all states should have equal rights, or you know, like in the Senate, or should the more populous ones have more power, and also how much should money be in consideration? In other words, if you if if a, if a country's job is to spend the people's taxes, why should people who pay no taxes get a vote? And these were the um, considerations that were done in the U.S. and. And, and that's, in a sense, how they also came up with the Electoral College. Uh, there was a property requirement um, in uh, the beginning of the history of the United States, so that uh, in the first election of the U.S., only 6% of the total population qualified to vote. Now, obviously, all... Um, women were not allowed to vote. Uh, in many cases, you, besides having property and besides being a man and besides being white, there was actually another qualification, which is the qualification of religion. Um, in many, uh, certainly in many of the colonies, uh, they did vote for assemblies under the British rule. And many, many states had rules saying no Catholics were allowed to vote. So, for example, in New York, Rhode Island, the Carolina, Maryland, and Virginia, you, Catholics were not allowed to vote. Uh, until 1828, no Jew, no Jew was allowed to hold a public office in Maryland. So, you know, this sort of religious uh, discrimination uh, carried over into the United States itself, um, and especially concerning property rights. Um, 
at the beginning, blacks were allowed to vote in the United States if they owned property. But these rights were taken away, and women too, but, women, but these rights were taken away uh, gradually uh, before the Civil War, and um, therefore uh, only property-owning uh, people at first had the right to vote. And then as they expanded the right to vote for uh, males who had no property, they took away the same rights to vote of women and blacks who had property. So when they made the changes to add voters, they also made changes to take away voters. And so uh, by the 1850s, all white males could vote, uh, but no blacks and no women. In 1870, blacks won the right to vote. In 1920, women won the right to vote. In 1924, Native Americans won the right to vote, except in Arizona and in New Mexico. And in 1948, Natives of Arizona and New Mexico won the right to vote. Um, in 1971, the last change in the Voting Act, uh, people who were 18 years and up got the right to vote. Um, during the... Uh, uh, Jim Crow period, meaning the period after the Civil War, uh, blacks, although they had the theoretical right to vote, uh, the southern states set up literacy, literacy, literacy tests, poll tax, uh, etc., that kept blacks and immigrants off the voting uh, rules. So the states set up their own kind of, we'll call them fake rules, to limit the vote to white people. Um, uh, especially only white men at, uh, until 1920. Um, but going backwards, going backwards, the reason that the American Constitution was ratified was a basic compromise that was made between the northern states and the southern states, which allowed the southern states to join America. And that was called the three-fifths rule. The three-fifths rule meant that slaves, slaves which are owned by anyone, and this could have been in the north or the south, but most of the slaves were owned in the south, that each slave counted as three-fifths of a person. And the south insisted on this compromise. They actually wanted the slaves to count as one person. Uh, the reason being that the more population a state had, the greater amount of representatives it had, and therefore the greater amount of electoral votes it had. So the compromise was that slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person. Um, this was not done in any way to help the uh, situation of the slaves in the South. Uh, slaves could not vote, period. So, uh, you know, if they, even if they counted them as one person, they still couldn't be able to vote. So that was clear about that. But the three-fifths rule not only recognized the sort of power of the South, it also recognized the wealth of the South. So in other words, that um, slaves were counted as money. The idea of counting each slave as three-fifths of a person meant that slave owners... Uh, sort of had extra votes in their pockets because of this idea that the slaves counted as, as, as three-fifths of a voter. 
And if a person had uh, many slaves, they sort of, in a sense, had many votes in their pocket that they could spend. Um, um, this compromise was accepted by the North in order to have the, the states, this United States become a country. And therefore, the Southern states, because of this rule, uh, had many more electoral college votes and many more representatives in Congress than they actually had real voters because the blacks couldn't vote. Interesting to know, by the way, that in many several states, the blacks were the majority of the population at different times in the history of the US. So for example, in Virginia um, and in um, North, uh, Virginia and in uh, where else? In Mississippi and in somewhere else. Let me see now. I can't remember where I wrote down. Um, the uh, the blacks were the majority. Yeah, South Carolina also. Um, in Virginia, uh, which was the largest state, most populous state in at the time of the founding of the United States, adding in the three fifths rule. Um, uh, Virginia had one quarter of the population of the whole United States and had therefore had one quarter uh, of the votes of the United States. In Virginia in the 1780s, there were more blacks than whites. Um, so, uh, you know, those blacks just added up to Virginia, added Virginia's power in the, in the American Federation. Um, there is a... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, but as I said at the very beginning, blacks who had property were allowed to vote. And this, this, this rule became one which um, uh, was um, cited in the famous Dred Scott case. The Dred Scott case was a case where in the 1850s a slave ran away from the south to the north and uh, the, the, the people who gave shelter to the slave were charged in court for holding stolen property. It's as if, it's as if you know, they, they, somebody stole a car, left it somewhere, wherever they left it in the yard, they left it in, that person sort of took it, and then the guy found his car and then sued to get it back. And uh, this is what happened in the Dred Scott case. And, and in fact, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that since slaves were property, legal property in the South, they couldn't change their status just by moving to the North. They were still somebody's property who bought and paid for, and the person had the right to reclaim the slave. However, there was a minority opinion in that court case. I'm just going to read you uh, what the judge said. And this has to talk, this is talking about blacks having the right to vote before the Civil War. Uh, of this, can, there can, uh, but, yeah, at the time of the uh, Americas being set up. Uh, of this, there can be no doubt. At the time of the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, all free native born inhabitants of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and North Carolina, even though descended from African slaves, were not only citizens of, the, of those states, but such of them as had the other necessary qualifications, meaning if they had property, 
possessed the franchise of uh, electors on equal terms with other citizens. So in other words, he cited this case to say, well, listen, um, if these people, if blacks could be as free and equal as everybody else, um, therefore, uh, if, if, um, uh, if they ended up in the northern states uh, and claimed their freedom there, once they claimed their freedom, they couldn't be uh, repatriated to the south because they were, had the same rights as everybody else. So, but that, that, he was the losing judge in that case. But just interesting to say that blacks did have the right to vote in several states, the ones I mentioned, um, uh, before uh, the changes were put into effect to take their votes away. Um, another important, uh, okay, so the next question is, so we said, um, we, we explained how the electoral college is, in, uh, is selected, what the electoral votes are, but how do we know how many electoral votes each state is supposed to have. So this question was addressed by the founders of, the, of America uh, in the 1700s, which said that every 10 years there has to be a census. And that census has to count every person living in each state. And depending on the results of the census, the numbers of representatives would then be readjusted every 10 years in the Congress and when you readjust the number of uh, members of Congress, uh, there, then, of course, the number of electoral college votes would be readjusted at the same time. So the census, in other words, is very key. And this year, 2020, they are holding a census in the United States. And President Trump has tried to, sh to cut the census off to stop counting people because every people, every person that gets counted uh, adds to the number of voters in that state and which adds to the number of uh, state representatives. So if you can undercount a specific class of people like poor people or black people or Latino people, you are effectively taking away not only votes in that particular state, but you're taking away electoral college votes from that state, which would then serve to select the president, which would of course not be him. Now, what he has tried to do in the census is to say, well, we should only count citizens. In other words, if you don't have the right to vote, why should you be counted at all? And why should your uh, body be counted as part of the apportionment of seats in the House of Representatives and Electoral College votes? So there's a certain logic to this, that only voters themselves, only eligible voters should be counted. But the fathers of the Constitution didn't say that. The fathers of the Constitution said, we have to count all persons living in the state. And there's a logic to that too, because the state's expenditures are, and are not only for people who are citizens. The state is providing transportation or healthcare or education, they're providing it to everybody. Those people who are not citizens are still paying taxes. So they're taxpayers, they're just not citizens. Uh, but President Trump has tried to cut, and did, cut the census short. So the census was supposed to end on um, October 1st, and he's ending it on September 1st, uh, just in order to try to account as few as people as possible. Uh, in rural states, 
people uh, are living in the same place for a long time. They're easy to reach and they're easy to count. In cities that have apartment buildings where people change addresses frequently, where people are moving in and moving out, where people are maybe afraid of authority, um, the census is not going to be counting the same proportion of people. And if you're not counted in the census and you're not registered as a voter, obviously you can't vote. So there's system in the United States by when it's led by the Republicans is to try to restrict the number of voters to the fewest as possible because they know that their base will always turn out to vote. But people who are transient, people who are poor, people who are member of minorities, people who are less literate in English don't have the same kind of uh, motivation to go and vote and register. And therefore, if these people are left off the voter list, so much the better. So that's the one element of the Republican strategy to suppress the vote. There's lots of other elements, but we're not going to talk about those elements at this time. Um, so the census then has been used every single 10 years to reapportion seats in the House of Representatives and therefore in the Electoral College. This is a very brutal, we'll call it a brutal system. Why is it brutal? Because there's a fixed number of seats in the House of Representatives, 435. They haven't increased it since uh, D.C. got its one seat. Um, that means that if you have, even if you have a growing population in the U.S. every 10 years, if your population in your state is not growing as fast as another state's population is growing, the slowest growing state are going to lose congressional districts and therefore lose electoral votes. And this has happened steadily since uh, the system has been inaugurated, or certainly since after the Civil War, um, uh, this system has been ongoing. So, for example, I said to you that New York State has 29 electoral votes. Back in the 1940s, they had 45 or 46 electoral votes. California might have started with seven electoral votes, but now they have 55. So the fastest growing populations in the United States right now, for example, would be in the West, Southwest and the West. Uh, their electoral votes are growing, um, whereas the states in the so-called Rust Belt, the Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Michigan, their electoral votes have been decreasing uh, 10 years by 10 years. Uh, but it's not a fast, it's not, it's not like states are emptying out and other states are filling up. It's a gradual migration, and uh, this 10-year census sometimes only captures part of the reality, again, because of changing addresses and all of that. So uh, there has been a shift uh, to the uh, western states. For example, Arizona today has 11 electoral votes, and when I started studying politics in the 1960s, they had five electoral votes. So there is a big difference, and remember, the totals don't change, therefore you're taking away votes and power from some states, namely, especially the, um, the north, the north, uh, northern states and the midwestern states, and you're adding it to the southern states and to the southwestern states. We in Canada have a much more merciful system and much more expensive system. We never take seats away from provinces whose populations are not growing. 
we just add them to provinces whose populations are growing. And therefore, the number of members of the House of Commons keeps growing and growing and growing until maybe one day they're going to put the chairs, you know, outside on the lawn because they refuse to take away seats from uh, provinces whose growth has been slow. And Quebec sort of counts in that sort of slow growth group, along with all of the Maritimes. But everywhere from Ontario and West, especially Ontario, Alberta, and BC, our fastest growing provinces, they've been adding seats like crazy every since. Last changes in the voting laws of the United States in the Constitution was the Voting Rights Act of 1964. Very important law. This was part of the civil rights uh, reestablishment of civil rights under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. And they voted there that all the districts in the United States and in the states themselves have to be roughly of equal size. So this is really important. Um, it's not important for the electoral vote because the electoral vote says um, how many, what's the total population of the state. And we don't care where they're living in the state. We don't care if they live all in one place or in a thousand places. The whole population gives you the number of seats in the House of Representatives, and it gives you, therefore, the number of electoral votes. But in order to establish fairness, the Civil Rights uh, Voting Act said that the districts have to be relatively equal. Because what uh, they were doing, especially in the South, they say, okay, uh, say Mississippi today has the largest percentage of blacks in the United States, which is 35% in, in that one state, except for D.C., which doesn't count as a state. So what they tried to do, the state leaders, is they say, okay, fine, maybe the 35% of the state, but what we'll do is we'll just put them all in two enormous districts, and then all the rest of the districts in the state, uh, which I think in Mississippi they might have had, uh, I'm not sure, about 11, so the other nine, we'll put them all for the white voters, even though, uh, you know, two ninths is not the same as 35%. So the Civil Rights Act tried to uh, fix this by saying that the districts do have to be the same size, more or less. Uh, the Republicans, however, in the, in the last, uh, in the, since the Bush uh, victory, although the, 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 in, inside the states themselves, the, sta the state governors have the right to establish the boundaries of the federal congressional districts as they want with the proviso that they have to have an equal number, roughly equal number of voters. So using modern computer-generated data, what they could do is then design districts to include the maximum number of the opponent's voters in one district, leaving all the rest of the people in the other district. And so it is very common in, in, in many states that um, although, uh, for example, let's say the... Um, uh, Democrats in Georgia could get 45% of the state vote, they might get only 20% of the state's representatives because of what we would call today gerrymandering or fixing the boundaries, uh, although technically legal, uh, practically speaking, um, they uh, still turned out uh, an unequal result. People in the U.S. went to court over this, and the courts basically said, you know, it's not up to us to fix it. It's up to the governors of each state to fix it. And the Democrats, by the way, did the same thing in Maryland uh, in their day. So it wasn't just a Republican-led uh, sort of 
idea, but it was done pretty well everywhere. One of the uh, main um, effects of the Electoral College is to concentrate election campaigning and spending only in the key uh, uh, swing states. So we all know this, and it's because uh, if you know you're going to win or lose a state, why bother campaigning there or spending money there? On the other hand, if a state is close and you're not sure it's within 5% one way or another, that's where you want to target your campaign expenses. That's why where you want to target your visits, etc. American elections are expensive. Uh, this past election in the U.S. probably cost somewhere around $10 billion. Uh, I read a figure where $4 billion per year is spent on electioneering, and of course on election years that money goes way up. Um, there was a very retrograde decision called Citizens United at the Supreme Court, which said basically that corporations have the same rights as individuals. So if an individual has a right of free speech, a corporation also has a right of free speech. If an individual has a right to donate money to a political party, a corporation can do the same thing. Um, if an individual has a right to set up a uh, PAC or political action committee uh, outside of the formal um, uh, political uh, system, in other words, not being part of the Democrats or Republicans, but outside of them, then a corporation can do the same thing. And so corporations set up, is, uh, donated tons of money in order to influence the results of the election. Um, what would they gain by having their person win? Well, tax relief, subsidies, tariffs on their competitors' goods, uh, protection of copyrights, which uh, they shouldn't really have, uh, foreign intervention in countries where they may have assets. There's no end to the amount of influence that um, um, corporations can have. The Koch brothers, the famous ones from, uh, from the U.S., uh, have donated m millions, if not more, to um, the Republicans. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, the same thing, the casino owner in Las Vegas, huge donors. At the same time, on the Democratic side, unions try to get money together to support the, the Democratic Party. And um, it's a, basically a free-for-all, uh, which leads to a kind of a cynical, uh, you know, uh, conclusion that money buys elections. And it, it's, it's not completely true, but it's partly true. Lately, we've been reading today, I uh, read about the Russians trying to, uh, you know, pra to, to, to practically interfere in the U.S. political life by... Uh, they posted a picture of a burning Bible and then some burning American flags and tried to insinuate that it's the rioters, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter people who are burning Bibles and American flags. And it's, it's fake news. But once people see it and once people absorb it, then the president can go ahead and say, oh, well, look what they're doing and you have to vote for us. Um, the American system... Uh, of voting uh, has, uh, as you could probably figure out, a lot of pros and cons. One of the pros that I find attractive is that the country is seen to be a united 
States of America. That is a union of all the states who get together all at the same time to select not only the president, but state elections run at the same time with exactly the same system of voting for the Senate, the House, the governor, as the, um, uh, you know, as, as the federal system runs. Um, in Canada, there's no connection there. In Canada, there, there is no kind of idea that the provinces are the ones who set the country up and that the Canada is a union of provinces. It's not like that at all. Although in the Senate, uh, way back when, in 1867, senators were appointed to represent each province and the senators had some power. Today, being a senator is uh, like getting a gold medal for your service to your country or your party. And there is no provincial input into the federal government. Whereas in the United States, the whole idea is state input into the selection of the president. And the state elections are run on the same day, so it focuses the minds of the residents of all of the United States that they are part of a state and a country at the same time. Our elections, our provincial elections, have no tie-in to the federal election. Uh, our provincial leaders act as if uh, they are kind of small, um, we'll call them uh, uh, presidents, uh, without hardly any reference to the federal system at all or to the prime minister at all. So, you know, we're kind of running a, kind of an 11 different uh, government type of uh, operation with no real connection between the provinces and the country. So, um, you know, that's one, that's one point. Um, Here, just page here. Um, now, what, what, given the givens that we've explained about the weak, the weakness in a way of that system and the, in a way, unrepresentative system it could be, has there been any ideas to change the system? And the answer is yes. They've tried many times. They've tried times to, they've tried to get rid of the Electoral College altogether um, and to represent, to change it to a one man, one vote system. Some of these bills have, were introduced in the Senate and the House of Representatives and obviously they didn't succeed because the people who have the most to lose were the ones who fought against it the most. Um, any change to this system would have to be done by an amendment to the American Constitution. To get an amendment, you have to get the votes of two-thirds of Congress, means two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House of Representatives, and the signature of the President, and the agreement of three-quarters of the states, and the signature of their governors. In other words, it's not easy to do. Uh, there have been sort of informal ways to try to change the system to say, for example, if all the states could get together and agree that all of their individual electors would vote in the same way as the majority of the country, that would sort of sidestep the need to have a, a constitutional amendment, uh, but to do practically the same idea. Uh, but the states have to agree to do that, and certainly they haven't been able to come to an agreement on that, uh, on that uh, idea. Um, 
Um, the Electoral College also favors the party in power. Now, it's not a surprise because incumbency in any system is an advantage. Uh, the president has the time, uh, the uh, money to go around to the swing states. He has the ability to go into those states and, you know, give goodies out to them. He has the ability to sort of campaign at the one hand as a president and on the other hand as a candidate. And uh, by doing this, of course, uh, he's getting the country as a whole to pay for his election campaign in an individual swing state. So uh, it, the incumbency is, is important. And where you have a, an electoral college, it means that you can concentrate on the swing states themselves. And uh, usually, out of 50 states, there may be 10 or 12, which are considered um, toss-ups. And you can just spend all your time and money and advertising in those states. And um, that's, what, that's what it does. But if you consider another idea, that if, if you had a different system, Let's say you had a one-man, one-vote system. So I was looking at the 1960 elections between Kennedy and Nixon. In that election, 69 million votes were cast, and Kennedy got 110,000 votes more than Nixon total. Imagine if that were the case, and you're counting the votes, uh, and it's so close, uh, it could be in chaos, uh, you know, in the final wrap-up. There could be so many, let's say, mistakes, forgotten ballots, manipulations, um, you know, lost ballots, uncounted ballots. I mean, when it's so close, that way, there, there could be chaos in the elections. Whereas if it's an electoral college system, as I said, the electoral college normally amplifies the actual results in the elections. So um, that the particular problem would be avoided. We did have, of course, <laughs> that the, the toss-up system, the toss-up result happened in 2000 between Bush and Gore because in the electoral colleges, they were basically uh, equal with the state of Florida being the decider. And the state of Florida was so close that they couldn't decide who won the state because out of millions and millions and millions of ballots cast, Florida has... Uh, today, well, in those days, it had a population of maybe 16 million. So they had 10 million votes, and each side got 5 million. And uh, each side got 5,250,000. Uh, and so the number of votes separating the two parties was in the hundreds out of 10 million votes cast. And they just couldn't make a decision on how to decide who won the state. And whoever won the state won the election. So it had to go up to the Supreme Court of, of, uh, uh, of the United States to decide. And by a five to four margin, they decided to stop counting the votes and to allow um, Bush to win the election on the grounds that he was ahead of the vote count in Florida at a certain time. But the Democrats said, yeah, but, you know, there's so many ballots that were tossed out, so many invalidated ones. We should go over those invalidated ones and see who they really voted for, and etc. So this was uh, uh, the one time that the Supreme Court actually decided the results of the U.S. election, and uh, everybody called it a nightmare and hoped that it would never happen again. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it looks like this coming election will be uh, even a worse nightmare. Uh, I'm not going to speak about it particularly now, but um, because of COVID and because of not voting in person and mail voting, you know, uh, if, if the race is very close, it could end up being um, equally contested in that way. So um, I just wanted to, and it's too bad I don't have this. I have um, another quote uh, in 1895 by a, um, uh, a uh, Southern politician from South Carolina who said, look, in South Carolina in 1895, there are way more blacks than whites. The Constitution gave, there were 135,000 blacks and 95,000 whites. So he said, well, the Constitution gives blacks an equal right to vote because uh, of the 1870 Civil Rights Act. But he said, if we went through it, we would lose all power. And we can't do that. And therefore, it's our duty as white citizens of South Carolina to prevent the blacks from voting, period. That was his speech. I mean, it wasn't as if he was trying to, you know, fancy it up. It wasn't like he was trying to rationalize it. He just said it flat out. And of course, blacks really. Uh, could not vote in the South in any practical and equal way until the Civil Rights Act of, um, of 1964. Um, and I do believe, uh, certainly by the last election, that the percentage of blacks who vote is actually greater than the percentage of whites who vote. And part of that is an echo of the times that they were uh, not allowed to vote. And so it's a right that they do cherish uh, and use. But overall, in the United States, the turnout rate for voting is very, very low. And part of that reason is because of all the hoops that have to be passed through before you can get to register to vote. And, and all the hoops you have to pass through to actually get your vote um, done and counted in the U.S. So, uh, you know, there's still efforts to sort of uh, play the system. And, um, you know, if you look at the New York Times today, there's a very interesting article saying that Trump being Trump, uh, people, if they had to risk getting COVID and going out to vote or risk not having their vote counted and having Trump uh, reelected, it's better for them to go out and uh, vote in person. So if you check the New York Times today, there's an article like that. Um, okay, I'm going to stop here and to take any comments, questions if you want. Um, anything about any of the subjects I spoke about? I hope you uh, got some ideas and information and kind of uh, it's sort of the Electoral College made sense to you considering what they were trying to do. And um, so that's it. And by the way, there are some other countries in the world today that use an Electoral College system that they, they sort of copied off of the U.S. Yes, in Canada we have... Uh the elections are not run by the political parties; they're run by Elections Canada. Why does the United why why can't the United States have the same thing, like an independent, an electoral commission running the election instead of the parties themselves? Which uh, I've always they, thought is ridiculous. Uh, no, the American elections, first of all, are run by the states by each state. There is something called the Federal Election Commission, the FEC, which is supposed to monitor the fairness of how this system is run. Uh, but indeed, the individual states are the ones who are responsible for setting up the rules and regulations for voting, 
the, the, uh, not only the districts themselves, but the locations of the voting booths in the districts, the hours of vote, the amount of um, ID that you need to show up, uh, other voting qualifications such as uh, prisoners, uh, convicted felons are allowed to vote or not allowed to vote. They are allowed to set up certain restrictions, but not restrictions based on ethnicity, religion, sex, or property or wealth. Those are the ones that are specifically excluded. But they could set up other ones. It, it is what it is. You know, vote, elect, democracy is a very imperfect system, you know, as they say, but except for all the other ones which are, are worse. So, Rashid, uh, yeah, just, yeah. just to follow up on Howard's question, I think maybe Howard was talking about the primary system where the political parties do have, uh, do get oh, to pick correct. candidates in their own way. Oh, to pick the candidate. Do political parties have to follow certain laws to make the process at least similar across the board? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure what... Mm, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, in a way, they, they for sure have to follow... They for sure can't say that only people whose names begin with A, B, C, and D are allowed to vote in a primary. There are laws that say, you know, against that. But there's a much more latitude in the primaries than there are in the elections. For example, so the primaries are the contest that choose who the candidates are going to be. So first of all, many state there are two basic systems of having a primary. One is that all the members of the party can choose to vote in that party's primary. Another one called the caucus system, which used to be more common, is the party big shots would gather together to choose who the candidates would be in the election. That's called the caucus system. Some parties have an open primary, meaning that anybody, even if you're not a member of the primary, could vote in the, in the party's primary. Uh, so that even a Republican can vote in a Democratic Party primary and vice versa. The idea being to try to attract members of the opposite party to uh, maybe join that party or listen to some speeches and propaganda from that party and maybe get interested in it. You know, if there's, on the other hand, a sort of concerted effort to, from the opposite party to all go and vote and vote for the weaker candidate, well, that's, you know, that's also could happen in that sort of a primary. Lots of states have, ha, have different systems. I mean, one state, st some states have what's called a jungle primary. And a jungle primary is that uh, there are no party primaries. There's only one primary that's held in the whole state and anybody could run for office. Um, and um, anybody can run for office. And if somebody in a jungle primary gets over half the votes, that person becomes the candidate. Uh, that person becomes the candidate uh, for a certain seat. If they don't, then uh, the top two people will run off against each other to become the candidate for that seat. So it's like, uh, you know, it's a different system. The different states can run things in a different way as far as the political primaries are concerned. You know, uh, that's how it works. So. In the so-called jungle primary, the first two, if one person gets over half the vote, then he automatically wins or she wins the seat of that district. If, the, if they don't, then the first place and the second place run against each other for the seat in that district. And the first and second place could both be Democrats or both be Republicans, but they will run off against each other in that district. So 
like I said, there's, you know, there are different um, systems in, in choosing who the candidates could be. Howard, do you have another question? You were, you were saying that they make it hard for people in general to vote in the States. Why not do right. like in Canada, make it simpler to vote? Well, that's a good question, but clearly if they make it harder, it's to the benefit of the party who's doing it. In particular, uh, in the state of Georgia it is, and North Carolina, uh, both those states are considered to be, let's call them swing states or states in play. Uh, the, the governor of the state is the one who has kind of nine, nine out of the ten uh, power. And they, they could kind of tailor the voting regulations in the state to attract the most of their supporters and to dis distract, uh, to detract or subtract most of the opposition voters. And so they've done things like uh, shorten voting hours, um, put uh, the voting places in places far away, for example, from universities where students would have to take buses to get there. And you know how lazy students are. Uh, they've put uh, voting places way out in the suburbs, so city people, uh, they might have just one place to vote in the city, uh, which of course is going to be so crowded that people will just show up and say, I'm not bothering to vote. And these are tactics that have actually been used in um, Georgia to... Uh, to um, you know, discourage voting by the opposite party, and the uh, Democrats lost an extremely close um, uh, governor's vote in 2016 over that. Stacey Abrams, the losing candidate and a potential vice president, has been very, very active in trying to um, reverse these voter suppression rules. Uh, but it is what it is. Um, Hershey, I have a question. I know that to quote, to quote, yeah, I was going to say to quote President Trump, it is what it is. Um, yeah. In uh, in Canada, to my knowledge, I can become a member of the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the NDP Party, all three of them. Right. I, I assume, at, let's say, at the federal level. Right. You, you just have to pay your dues, and uh, that's it. In the in the United States, when we hear people are registered Republicans, registered Democrats, or even registered right. Independents. Does right. that mean you could only become a member of one party and who keeps track? Yes, that's right. You can, what that means is you can be members, you can be a member of both parties if you register with the parties. But this idea of a registered Republican or registered Democrat or registered independent has to do with how the state set up, how each state sets up its own voting lists. And so when they do that, you are allowed to register as one or the other or neither. And that, that goes on their state records as who you are. Um, now, what practically speaking, what happens is, is that the two different parties will get those lists from the state and then work with those lists to make sure that their particular voters turn out to vote. But it's the actual state that does that registration and not the party itself. So you don't even have to take out a membership and pay the dues and make a contribution to a party. You just have no. to... You have to register as, if you want, if you want. You can register as a Democrat or Republican or Independent when the state carries out its, its uh, campaign to get people on the voter rolls, to register people to vote in other words. 
Uh, if there are any other questions for Hershey, you can press the raise hand button and we can call on you to ask your question or you can type it out in the Q&A box on Zoom. Let me just mention about women's, uh, women's right to vote. Um, at, in, at a federal level, at the, constant, the federal level, the women were given the right to vote after the First World War. Um, probably as a result of the work that women did during the war to sort of shore up the economy while the men were away. Um, probably because of just general increased education in women's and organization of women to get the right to vote. Um, this organization was in part a result of the temperance movement, uh, the movement to ban alcohol in the United States. There was huge uh, organization of women trying to get a constitutional amendment to ban alcohol uh, because they felt this was destroying family life, uh, their men were spending the household money in bars, etc. And the organization that led this movement was in part already organized to ask for the women's right to vote after the, uh, after the First World War, uh, which they won in 1920. But at a state level, Every state could decide on its own if women had the right to vote, and Wyoming in the 1870s allowed women the right to vote, which was the first, uh, the first uh, state in the U.S. to allow women the right to vote. There was an idea somehow that if women got the right to vote, that they would vote in a different manner from how men would vote, and therefore some way or other the women would be electing the president and not the men. But as it turned out, there in, in many, you know, in many, many elections up till very recently, women and men voted the same way. Uh, but again, this time looks different. The 2018 elections, the, 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 even the 2016 elections, uh, Trump did much better with men than women. That result was even amplified in the 2018 midterm elections. And the polls are showing the very same thing for the 2020 elections. So as, a, as an electoral block, then, women uh, and men are, in a way, on two different sides in, in the United States. Um, there is a kind of, in Canada, there is obviously not a mathematical equality in that way. But they, they, there is, um, you know, a, a much more, uh, a less, a less, Let's, we'll call it a less fractured electorate on the basis of gender. The conservatives do better with men, the liberals do better with women in general. But it's not a huge difference the way it is in the States. Okay, I don't see any additional questions. Um, so thank you, Hershey, for another oh, in the headlines. Thank you, thank you, Daryl. Always a pleasure. Uh, you know, we'll obviously come back to the subject as the election time gets closer in the States and so many people are are... You know, in a way, um, you know, uh, as you and many people out there have many friends, but be because people are so tuned into the American media, reading the uh, New York Times or reading Washington Post or the American magazines or certainly the American networks and the American specialty networks, it's almost as if we're like active bystanders. I'll call ourselves active bystanders. Uh, we're in there watching. We all get nervous, uh, you know, with one poll or another. We all think it's going to affect our lives, but we have as much sort of say in this election as uh, people in uh, who knows where, the Congo, have it, 
in, in the American elections. So our opinions don't matter, they don't count, um, but uh, we allow ourselves to get so caught up in it because we are part of the sort of cultural uh, world of the United States. And, the, and then, the, you know, that cultural world extends into politics and then that's what we do. So, you know, there's, I know so many people who are more knowledgeable about American politics than Canadian politics. And they're more, and they're more emotionally attached to the American political system than they are to our own here. It's just a, an observation of what, what it's like as a, as a kind of a mouse living next to an elephant. You know, you're going to get all the smells of the elephant, even though you're not the elephant. Right. Well, I think, I think you're right. And for people who, who follow this, it, it is a TV show. It's, it's easier for Canadians to see it's a TV show because, as you said, we're, in theory, Canadians have no reason to pay as much close attention as we do, apart from the fact that those who are news junkies, political junkies, find it entertaining. Um, and so it, that's that's the best evidence of that, whereas Canadian politics tends to be less entertaining and having to do with, you know, Senate expenses that were maybe too high. That seems a little bit uh, boring. Um, but I, yeah, I agree. It's, it's a question. It's a blessing. But we're, it's a blessing for us. We're lucky to live in such a boring, uh, undivided country. I mean... Who wants to live with that drama day in and day out? You know? Let me ask you this question, though, and, and I know we're, we're extending our time far, so I appreciate people sticking with this. But here's my question. If Canada had the same number of, um, of, of uh, TV and news reporters, the same number of organizations that monitor, you know, all sorts of government uh, uh, issues and yes. so on, and if there was this, if there was a constant talking about these issues in yes. Canada to the degree there is in the United States, don't you think there would be more things to talk about and potentially more scandalous things to talk about in Canada? Um, no, I, 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 it's, I would say, you know, my, my gut answer would be no. Um, I would just say that we have the resources if people want. Okay, there's something called C-SPAN. You can watch the debates of the House of Commons all you want. Uh, it's on TV, it's free, it's provided to uh, all TV subscribers. You know how many people actually watch that stuff? It's like, you know, the great British baking, cake baking show gets thousands times more viewers in Canada than C-SPAN sitting and watching the honorable member of uh, Lambton get up and give a speech about, uh, you know, the, the condition of uh, the crops on his, uh, the, you know, in his riding. I mean, uh, it's a good thing that we don't have to be so involved in politics. It's a good thing that it doesn't matter who is our prime minister. It's a good thing that we have three parties that have responsible, educated leaders who are all moderate people. I think that's a blessing. And because of that, uh, the stakes are so low that people don't get involved. The stakes are just not that high. Uh, you know, we're so lucky that we've had three, our last election, we had three uh, potential leaders of the country who all agreed that we are a social democracy, who all agreed that immigration is a good thing, who all agreed that multiculturalism is a good thing, who all agreed that the freedoms that we have are good things. And nobody wants to say, oh, we have to stop Mexicans from coming into the country and we have to stop Muslims from coming into the country and, um, you know, all the rest of that 
uh, racist uh, stuff that uh, Trump is talking about. So, you know, we're, we're lucky that we're not, um, you know, in the same, even though we're so influenced by their politics, it's rare that we have a politician, and we do have some. There are some, you know, candidates for the conservative leadership who said, you know, we should be a Christian, evangelical, anti-gay, and this and that. These people get shot down so fast, and any, anybody who mentions anything bad about immigrants or Chinese or, 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 you know, I mean, it's wonderful that these people are condemned right away and they go back and hide in their holes. Doesn't mean they're not there, but they're just hiding in their holes. So in that sense, we're so fortunate. We're, I would say, one of the most fortunate democracies in the world in that way. Yeah, I think, I think our callers would agree. And I'll, I'll, try, I'll try this one other way with you, Hershey. If you look at the number of people in Washington, just to take Washington, for example, from major newspapers, particularly newspapers, yeah. but some TV, the New York right. Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, like these are, right. these are world-class reporters they're all trying to find out stuff. And it's not just that there's 10 of them, 12 of them. I'm not sure what the press corps is in Ottawa in terms of like big time reporters. There must be dozens of reporters who are all trying to find stuff and who are, you know, super talented. I'm not saying Canadian reporters aren't, but these are super talented people who have risen up to the very top. I just think that they are finding more stuff because there's more of them to find the stuff. Uh, I understand that argument. I, you know, you're, you're right, but because it just doesn't matter here so much, um, there aren't the amount of, we still have sort of, uh, muckrakers, uh, in Canadian politics. Uh, we had a paper called the Hill Times. Um, what was the name of the other one? Frank, I think it was the other magazine called Frank. But, you know, if you have no market for it, you're not going to flourish. That's, that's the point, you know, is it the chicken or the egg that, you know, that drives the, uh, the interest? And, um, you know, our, our country is not interested in tearing down the prime minister and his party or in tearing down the opposition and their party. Our country is not calling the prime minister a traitor and a sellout and, uh, or the opposition leader a traitor and a sellout. So once you get away from all of that, then... You know, if you're in a debating club, you know, 95% of the people are going to, to, you know, change the channel. And I think that's a great thing, frankly. I really do. All right. There you have it. Hershey Dwoskin in okay. the headlines. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And, you know, I, I hope to uh, be with you next week with some different subject. It will be just as interesting. Great. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.